I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Nadia Malik. Nadia, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little about who you are? Yeah, so um, I'm a social worker. I actually recently graduated um, uh, just last year, and I currently work at Mural Arts. Um, I run the Porchlight Department. Um, so we work in um, behavior, health, and art. We have an amazing partnership with a city uh, department, the Department of Behavior Health, and um, we get to do um, amazing programs working with vulnerable communities, um, working in mental and behavior health. Mm. Can you tell us a little about what you do? Yeah. So um, I, I will say when I was in social work school, I um, was trying to decide what I wanted to do with the education. And I knew that I wanted to do something with art. And um, I just didn't know something like this existed. Um, I think one of the big things when I was in social work school, too, was a lot of people had ideas about the populations they wanted to work with. You know, people wanted to work with folks who are veterans or wanted to work with kids. And I was just kind of open. I didn't really have a particular arena I wanted to um, be in. And Porchlight, definitely. I just came across it. Actually, I believe through you, I came across it. And it was amazing to find um, a place that does the exact work that I was looking for. Um, So we um, work with um, several different um, groups throughout the city. Um, We we do a lot of work in homelessness. So we have three, um, what we call storefronts. Um, There are three, um, like, uh, long-term venues in the city where we work with populations specifically in those neighborhoods. Um, So we have one storefront in Kensington. And so we work with those who are dealing with opiate use disorder. Um, We do, you know, art programming. um, And then with that art programming, um, because of our amazing partnership with the Department of Behavioral Health, we also have peers that work alongside us. And those peers are people who have lived experience. um, So either have a mental health or substance use diagnosis. And um, the amazing thing is that we get to do art programming to bring people into the, the space. And then we get to, uh, once we get to know people, once they trust us, um, we get to refer them out for any services that they might need. Um, mm-hmm. And having the peers there is amazing because they can talk to folks who are working there. Um, they've had similar experiences to the folks that we work with and mm-hmm. can create a relationship with them. So we really use the art as a way to bring people in, art as a way to um, have people um, feel comfortable with us and um, as a way for healing as well. And then in that way, we're able to provide a bunch of different resources. Um, mm. So we have our storefront in Kensington, and then we have two storefronts in the Southeast and the Northeast. Um, both of those storefronts also work with refugee and immigrant populations. Um, in the Southeast, we work with um, Southeast Asian, mostly um, families. And then in the Northeast, we work with uh, mostly Arab speaking families. Um, a lot of folks who have come in from Syria in Iraq and Afghanistan And again, we use art programming to help people um, bring people in. We do a lot of ESL and citizenship citizenship classes, but Mm -hmm. really using art as a way for people to feel comfortable in a new country, um, Mm -hmm. as a way to meet other people, as a way to feel um, just more comfortable in a new place and to um, get to know each other as well as, you know, um, the their surrounding neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious, what types of, of art are you engaging people with? Um, what what types of projects or activities are people mm-hmm. doing to build community? 
Yeah. So, I mean, of course, we're mural arts, so we do a lot of murals. Um, actually, the nice thing with Porchlight was when we first started, um, this uh, uh, we ha- were able to hire um, a researcher. Um, so a group from Yale worked with us to talk through, um, to just research what art making and specifically mural making does for folks who have behavioral health issues. So it's really amazing for us to have that data as well. Um, so with mural making, the premise that we have just in mural arts in general is that um, people who work together on a project um, that helps build community, right? Um, so, and with the mural making process, that's really what our focus is. Um, so when we, uh, like I mentioned, we have the storefronts, but we also have um, what we call provider site partnerships. And that's how we started. Um, so basically there's a bunch of, you know, mental health providers, uh, behavioral health providers throughout the city, and we partner with them. And that's what the study really looked at. Um, so when we partner with these um, provider sites, we go in for a couple of years. We have artists doing art programming, and then we work with the community there um, for the year to um, do a mural about something that um, is relevant to them. Um, so if we're, for example, in a provider site that provides um, recovery for substance use, um, you know, the mural might be about like what the importance of community and recovery or um, trying to destigmatize the kind of mental health issues or behavioral health issues that that community faces. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, our provider site, we're with Morris Home, and Morris Home provides um, uh, recovery and wellness. Um, it's a residential facility for um, specifically trans men and women. And so when we're working with, uh, while we're working at Morris Home, we're working with them on, um, you know, what it means to them to be trans in Philadelphia, what that identity means, but also just whatever they want to work on to get their story out in their mural. Um, Mm. And so the nice thing for that study showed that is that mural making, because it's such a collaborative process, because murals are so huge, it's not something that one person can do all on their own. Um, It really helps build community. um, And um, and especially because it's such a public piece, you're putting something out there in the community. Um, people talk about it, right? People are working together on it. It helps destigmatize um, a lot of these issues that come up for folks. Um, and so, yeah, so one of the p- things that we work in, obviously, is mural making. But because we have the storefronts, because we're in so many different venues, um, we have access to a bunch of other art activities. Um the person who runs our Kensington storefront, she's a music therapist. And so she started um, using, um, we don't provide therapy in our uh, our locations, but she started using music therapy um, principles to do um, a music hangout every week with folks. So people come mm-hmm. in, share either their favorite music, um, listen to music and talk about what it's bringing up for them or create their own music together. Um, mm-hmm. We've also, you know, try to, we try to diversify our art programming as much as possible, really because we feel like as much as we can offer to people, that gives them something to come in for. Um, So someone might not want to do um, music, right, but loves painting, um, or they've never painted before, but they're interested in it. Um, One of our very long running programs in Kensington, um, we've been in Kensington for three years. And from the beginning, we've worked with two artists there, um, Catherine Pennypacker and Lisa Kelly, who are textile artists. Um, So they work with folks on weaving um, and so, you know, we're not limiting that to paint. It's, you know, you're working with fabric and you're, it's very, um, tactile and you're working on weaving and, um, That's working amazing. on a loom. Yeah. So we try to offer as much as possible, um, really as, as a way to bring as many people in as possible. Mm. Um, and then in addition to your role at Mural Arts, you are also a writer, right? I am. Yeah. So my, 
undergraduate experience. Um, I um, graduated in undergrad for, um, with a journalism degree, and I worked as a reporter for several years and um, really have loved writing since I was little. <laughs> um, it's always, I've loved reading and writing. I feel like it's a great way to express myself and just um, love that as a skill. Mm. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story, and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? Yeah, um, I think for me, it was um, trying to find kind of a niche for myself. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I mentioned I worked as a reporter and I loved, loved being a reporter. Um, but I felt like it wasn't um, the work that I was doing wasn't necessarily fulfilling the reason I got into journalism. And then I think, oh, like I mentioned too, with social work, I, when I went to school for it, um, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with it. And I think it's just this idea of like all of us have this niche in the world of like what we should be doing, but sometimes it takes a while to find that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And not to say that, you know, your job is going to fulfill what your lifelong purpose is. But I think for me, it was like, I always wanted my job to reflect what I, what my, you know, morals are, what my purpose is. And um, it took me a while to get there. (laughs) Um, It just, Mm. it was, um, it was, it was tough to find what I like doing. Um, I felt like I was adrift for a while. And I don't think there was anything wrong with being adrift, because I think it gave me a lot of um, flexibility to find what I was doing. Um, but you know, it's also never easy to be like, I don't feel like I'm fulfilled or f- don't feel like I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And also, right. like if you're doing a job just for the sake of making money, it makes it harder to do that job. So, Right. Right. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. I think that, uh, many of us, myself included and other listeners may have found ourselves in different situations in life where we're not quite sure where we're going or if, or if we're in the place where we want to be ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important for us to talk about that um, so that we know that this is a normal experience and that many of us have been in this place. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, so um, on my mom's side of the family, I am the oldest of 20 cousins. And so, wow. you know, I have a lot of younger cousins who are either going through college or just kind of finding their first jobs at the moment. And I remember having this conversation with them where it felt like to them that other people kind of had their lives together and kind of knew what they were doing. And I was like, you know, that's not true at all. I mean, they would say that about me and my sister who are older than them, but, Oh yeah, you know, you guys just have your acts together. You know what you're doing. And I was like, it might look like that, or that might be the facade that people put out there, but it's not true. And I think, yeah, it's a good good conversation to have where it's like, yeah, it's okay if you are in college or whatever point in your life and you don't know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Like it's okay to experiment. It's okay to, try different things. You don't always have to know exactly what you should be doing. Right. And then how many of us are constantly in this process of redefining ourselves, even after we think we've had our, we, we have everything figured out. Right. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I would go through phases of life where it's like, I'm sure this is where I'm supposed to be. And then it's like, Oh wait. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, for me, those, those past experiences, like I probably wouldn't have gotten to working at mural arts if I didn't have those past experiences of, experimenting and trying different things. Um, It was those past experiences that helped me get this job, right? Where I decided to work in nonprofits for a little while. I decided to try out um, different fields and see what stuck. And yeah, it it can be scary, but I think it also in the end is like, yeah, that's what gave me all these amazing life experiences. Mm. Can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? 
Yeah. Um, I think definitely moving to Philadelphia. So I'm originally from um, the Chicago area. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago my whole life and I love the area. Um, but I knew um, when I was going to graduate school that I really wanted to move to a new place um, just because, um, you know, just because I figured it's a good opportunity to try something new. And I was lucky enough that I was able to move to Philadelphia when I um, got into social work school. And um, I will say one of the first things that we learned about in Philadelphia too were the murals. So it was kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just feel like um, for whatever reason, my whole career in social work school turned into stuff that made me really um, want this career path. Um, You know, I met you actually, and you do a lot of work in art and trauma. Um, I took an art and social work class, but I think it was also just this um, freedom of being able to move to Philadelphia and try something new um, and come to a new place. Um, and I think shifting where you are, or shifting, you know, your pers- uh, your location can really shift your perspective too, um, mm. where you're not really necessarily bogged down by other people's expectations of you. So you kind of have this uh, idea of like, oh yeah, I can f- discover a new path on my own. So I think for me that was really. Um, yeah, I think for me, that was really um, a good, um, like a positive moment, um, even though, you know, I miss my family and I get to see them and I'm lucky enough to get to see them often. Um, I think for me, it was a good turning point. Mm. Um, I'm just thinking about like the universality of of the statement that you made about like kind of like uh, changing location can also support you in changing your perspective. And I think about, um, you know, like we can change our physical location, but then we can also kind of change like the vantage point that we're looking at a particular situation mm-hmm. um, and a change in perspective can also kind of help us come to a deeper understanding of ourselves and where we want to go. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also like facing up to that, like doing things that make you scared. It's, it's scary for sure, right? Like, you know, packing up my whole life and moving here by myself, and I didn't necessarily know too many people here. It's scary. Um, But I think that fear can help. Yeah, it can push you a little bit too, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. I feel like we talk about that in therapy sometimes too, where it's like, you know, doing the thing that makes you comfortable all the time might not be the best for you. Um, You know, if you're kind of repeating old habits and repeating old patterns. Um, And like, I feel like I find that with work too, where it's, um, you know, where I feel like at mural arts, we're always encouraged to try new things and to kind of take scary leaps and have the support to do that. And so I feel like that's, yeah, it's just um, everything. Like I, I think you're starting new things. You learn more and you just add to your, perspective in life. And that can only hopefully be helpful to you and not, you know, change your, change your mind about things. Mm -hmm. What do you see for yourself in the future? Um, yeah, that's a, (laughs) I feel like now that we're in, uh, this quarantine, it's a little bit hard to view the future. Right. But yeah, I think, um, I think, but it's also kind of exciting because I think at a certain point we will get out of this. Right. And we will move on and go back to how things were, but also we have this um, again, I guess, you know, kind of this idea of like, we've lived under this and we know what we can do with um, how we can change things in the future. Um, I think for me um, personally, um, it's just um, kind of giving um, more voice to people because I have this amazing platform at Mural Arts. Um, and I would say trying to just grow our programs and grow uh, myself as a person um, mm-hmm. through this work. Um, I think so. one of the programs that we work in, um, we work, um, it's a same day work program. So we pay 
um, folks who are economically insecure, um, housing insecure, to work with us making murals every day. And um, it's so amazing to me when I talk to the folks there, um, I just get to hear a lot of their stories and, um, you know, why they kind of are in situations that they're in and um, working with them to see like, okay, how can we find a different way out of this? Um, And it's just so great to be able to be on site with folks and to hear their stories. And um, I think those are stories that don't get told that often. And then Mm -hmm. I have this amazing platform to try to tell that to other people um, to try to elevate those stories. Um, I think it's just, you know, these voices of folks who are so marginalized or people don't necessarily think to go to them when they're making policy decisions or things like that. Um, I think it's just really important. And so I think for on a personal level, I mean, I just hope that I um, am continuing to grow as a person, like continuing to learn, um, continuing to expose myself to as much as possible. And then just as um, professionally, I just feel like, you know, we can continuously try to shape our programs so that they reflect our participants more than they do what we think they they need. Um, I think we're good at that um, at Mural Arts, but I think we can definitely always grow in that. And I think um, recently, it's just been underscored even more with, you know, with the unfortunate um, killing of George Floyd and, you know, the protests that followed. Um, It's just underscored the importance of actually hearing people and not assuming that we know what people are trying to be, to talk about, right? Listening mm-hmm. to people and what they want, um, changing systems because the things that we've done in the, the way that we've done things in the past have not been working. And mm-hmm. um, so I'm hoping, yeah, that like whatever little kind of realm of power I have um, with my programs, like we get, continue to do that. Mm-hmm. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Hmm. Um, yeah, that is a good question. Um, I feel like, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a resource, but when, um, I think especially with this lockdown, I feel like I did not consider myself an artistic person ever. Um, I, you know, appreciate art, but I myself didn't consider myself artistic. So you didn't consider your writing <laughs> to be artistic? No, you know, it's like, it's because, you know, because it's like nonfiction writing, it's journalism. So it's like, I didn't consider it that way, but it is, it is completely but um, but I think um, when this lockdown happened, you know, we have so much more time for ourselves. And it's also just like for, you know, I keep talking to folks about how art can help with mental health. And it's like, you know, I never apply that to myself. Um, so mm-hmm. I do feel like a good resource is really um, just using art as a way to relax. Um, I think, you know, even if you don't feel like you have anything major going on, like with small stressors, I think art's a great outlet. Um, and also like, you know, I you know, during this lockdown, I started doing some paint by numbers. And again, like, I don't consider myself a painter in any by any means. But it's like, oh, I can follow this kind of paint by number. And I created something beautiful. But it's also like, you know, we talk about this with art, it's like pushing yourself to do a project, and seeing it come to completion. That's amazing, right. And it's, Mm -hmm. um, and I think it is that we just hold ourselves back and are, you know, are like, yeah, this is not for me. But it's like, yeah, so I was pushing myself to do different projects in different media, um, and see what happens. And I think that's a great resource for people, especially because you don't have to spend a lot of money to do that. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. obviously I had a paint by number, but whatever uh, materials you have, you can like push yourself to become, to create something. Right. And right. I think for me, that was really like, it really helped me during this time. Um, but just in general too, it's like, it's nice to be like, oh, I'm not an artist, but oh, I can actually complete something. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think it's also important for us to remember so often we are like so focused on the end product and making something pretty mm-hmm. and making something beautiful and it being like the best thing we ever made. And sometimes we make things that were just relaxing to us. Yeah. And other times we make a masterpiece and then other times we make something and say, you know what, I never want anyone else right. to see this again. <laughs> right. um, but it's like in the making where we can find like a sense of connection and expression. And, and in cir- certain circumstances, we can feel a sense of peace. Yeah, and there's something beautiful in that failure too, right? Um, where it's like, hey, at least I tried something, you know? And yeah, right. it was, it looked horrible, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, at least I did it. <laughs> Um, and you can turn that into something else, you know, it just, yeah, I mean, one thing that I failed at continuously throughout this uh, pandemic, and even before that is gardening, I do not have a green thumb at all. <laughs> like every plant that I put together, it just dies. <laughs> it's just, but you know, I keep trying. So I keep learning from my mistakes. And I'm never going to be a master gardener. But it's like, you know, and, and it gives me respect for people who make that their life, right, where mm-hmm. I know I'm never going to have that kind of knowledge, because I don't have the time to put into gardening. But have a lot of respect for those folks who do make it their life's, you know, mm-hmm. life's work. So, and um, you never know, there's still time. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also like, it's kind of nice to, um, you know, have that acknowledgement that like, I'm not great at everything, but that's okay. You know? Right. Right. None of us are right. great at everything. Right. So is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? Um, I think um, one thing when I was thinking about this, um, you know, having this conversation, um, I think um, when uh, when I think about my work and just kind of my personal life, too, um, one thing that always kept coming up to me, coming up for me was um, kind of this idea of like long term solutions versus short term solutions. And I know you're a social worker, too. You're familiar with this idea of like a lot of us, I think, take the pathways that are easier just because it is easier, right? And those solutions aren't necessarily the best ones. Um, and I think finding the things that work for people take a lot of time. And not all of us have the patience for that. And I've been trying to push myself to have more patience for that. Um, like a quick example is, you know, when we work with folks with opiate use disorder, it is not an easy disorder to work with, right? People are um, battling some major things in their life. And the root of most opiate use is that someone has, you know, deep seated trauma, and Mm. um, has to work through that trauma. And that takes a lot of patience and a lot of time. But the effects of having the patience to work through that and like really put in the time for that are so much more long term than just kind of um, trying to deal with like kind of a band-aid solution to opiate use, right? Like trying to put people to like either put people away or whatever it is, right? That people just kind of want to sweep the problem away. Um, and so I think it's always, t- I think I'm constantly trying to find ways for myself to like have patience with the long-term solutions, but also trying to sell those as the best solution for people um, in general, right? It's hard to tell other people too that like, Hey, we're working with homeless populations and we're trying to get people into work, but um, finding someone a job isn't a thing that happens overnight, right? Like if someone's been homeless for 10 years, there's a reason they've been homeless for 10 years and us working with them means that we have to have the patience to say, Hey, you've been dealing with this for a long time. What are the like very small steps that we can take so that you can get somewhere where you can work part time. And that might be take a very long time, right? It might not be Mm -hmm. something that happens within months or years. Um, But like having that patience, it's hard to sell that to people. But I think that's the challenge to myself too, is to keep that in mind and try to find the best way to 
tell other people that too. Mm. Um, and I think we see that again, like, you know, with, with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you saw like, you know, we saw the change that happened slowly in that movement too, where a couple of years ago, even it was kind of like, nobody wanted to be behind that movement. And then all of a sudden there was momentum and mm-hmm. it's just kind of like the long-term having those long-term goals instead of like, we're going to try to find the easy solutions to things. Mm. Um, and there's some things that have easy solutions. Right. But, you know, I think when we're talking about these long-term problems, um, I think, which is why I was like, when you're saying, you know, where do you see yourself in the future? It is that like, I hope to keep doing this work and seeing some change in Philadelphia. Um, and I think it's really possible. It's just like having the resources and having the funding and having all the, the manpower to kind of actually make a difference. I think that that'll be pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for participating today. No, thank you for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.